Welcome to the Today Dreamer podcast. My name is Michael. I'm a meditation teacher, a musician, a mentor, and a conversationalist based currently in Melbourne, Australia. And the podcast is here to help you cultivate your practice of presence so that you may more fully participate and contribute to the blossoming of the emergent world story as it unfolds. That's my intention. And hopefully by the end of this chat, you'll have some clarity, inspiration, and possibly some motivation towards that participation and contribution. Today's guest is Jenny Thirtle. Jenny is the assistant director and teacher at the School for FM Alexander Studies. So as part of her work at the school, she runs groups and masterclasses for the voice and performance days. So since graduating from the Melbourne Alexander Teacher Training School in 1996, Jenny has also maintained a private practice where she teaches musicians and members of the general public who are in pain. She's run 12-week courses at the Victorian College of Arts, Music Department, and the Media Conservatorium for their bachelor degrees. Currently, she's teaching at the VCA in the Drama Department. So prior to her Alexander training, Jenny studied and performed as an opera singer. She began her music training in 1979 in Wellington. And she played in many groups and orchestras, including the Youth Orchestra of New Zealand. Whilst in the UK, Jenny has studied singing, languages and all things relating to performance. So uh, I came across the Alexander technique fairly recently through a beautiful friend of mine, Joanna, and she introduced me to Jenny. And this opened up uh, a beautiful world of exploration, which I'm so excited and I feel blessed to be able to share this with you today because the Alexander Technique, um, as you'll soon find out, is just a wonderful space of exploration and um, has a lot of beautiful parallels that can help us connect more deeply to our body and to the practice of presence. So uh, before we do get into things with Jenny, I'd like to invite you to take a breath in with all of us here listening uh, beyond time and space <laughs> and come into our own state of presence so that we may possibly uh, more fully absorb these beautiful sharings that Jenny has to offer. So I'd like to gently invite you to close your eyes wherever you are and no matter what's been happening in your day or your week, see if we can come into a space of connection, of deep connection with our breath in this moment. Feel free to gently take an in-breath in through your nostrils. See if you can take it in really slowly. Whenever it is that you may reach the peak, feel free to pause for a moment, noticing the subtleties of your experience before gently and just as gracefully releasing on the out-breath, repeating the process as many times as you like as we move into things.
Alexander technique, we're looking at those really deeply ingrained patterns. <clears throat> we're looking at it from the perspective of a, a whole organism, let's say, so the whole of the human being. So the thinking and physicality, there is no separation. <clears throat> so patterns that we have that are uh, that seem to be physical also have habitual mental processes that go with them. And so how those things come about really are determined by our experiences in our life, our physicality, what we're sort of born with, our hereditary, if you like, um, and the experiences that we have. And a lot of those things that start to arise may well have served us very well at some point or another. <clears throat> we don't really do things uh, in a way that's to harm ourselves, not usually, <laughs> but um, the patterns that we build, we don't realize are sitting there and they, they become fairly ingrained. And then they no longer serve us. So uh, with Alexander Technique, we're really looking at how are those patterns informing our everyday life. And so we teach people how to start to look at them and to change them, really. That's, that sounds quite powerful. And I, and I, I kind of wanted, wanted to know a little bit more about the technique itself, because it seems like this is only how it seems. So I could be wrong, but, uh, and I, you know, let me know, kind of help me out with this, but it seems as though it's something that I haven't really heard much of. And I, it doesn't seem like a lot of people know about the technique. So I was wondering, you know, you know, maybe it would be, would be good to kind of um, share a little bit about um, what goes on and, and how that process comes to be um, before maybe we could, before going a bit deeper in the direction that we were heading. Mm. Okay, so um, maybe if I tell you what Alexander's story was, it might help to kind of give us a framework yeah. of how this came about. So he was a, um, an actor and orator in the days when people used to read to an audience. <clears throat> and he found that he kept losing his voice. And in, the, in those days, he would go off to a doctor or a physician and they would give him remedies and sprays and, and prescribe rest. And then he'd get back on stage and he would keep losing his voice. And it culminated in a very important performance that he had where he said to his doctor, what, what am I going to do? You know, and the doctor said, right, rest the X number of weeks, don't do any vocalizing, and then you'll be right. <clears throat> so that's what he did. His speaking voice was fine. But as soon as he got back on stage and was in performance mode, he halfway through the performance completely lost his voice. So then he decided it must be something that he was doing to himself. And that was where he started. He thought, right mirrors he set up a lot of mirrors around himself and he started investigating what was he doing that was different when he was speaking normally and when he was performing 
and he made the discovery of certain physical things <clears throat> that he was doing to interfere with his whole self. It took him another 15 years of exper experiments and investigations to really find out all these little things that were arising. So he, he was finding that it wasn't just the physicality, it was something to do with the way he conceptualized the act of speaking in public. And so he had to really start to look at how did that thinking impact his physicality. And he realized that we were looking at a psychophysical uh, coordination of a whole system. So um, <clears throat> he came up with some physical things that were interesting in that the relationship of his head to his spine, to the rest of his body was impacting what happened. But in order to change that, he had to see what he was doing with his, with his mind, his thinking, <clears throat> and start to investigate, well, when I go to do that particular activity, I tighten and disorganize my head and neck in this particular way. How can I now <clears throat> change that? And so he came up with um, his uh, two favorite words really is inhibition and direction. And so he had to observe what he was doing. He then had to say, I don't want to do that. I'd like to energize myself to do this new thing. So uh, it was a huge discovery, really. Um, and in the relationship of the head to the whole of the body, but also then the way that we thought we think when we do this. Yeah. So there's, <laughs> so there's this kind of um, aspect of developing a, a sense of awareness or a presence in the body. And I, I think if looking deeply into a lot of spiritual traditions, you see this as well. So there's an interesting kind of link I can see forming already there. And I think there's a sense also of, you know, deepening that presence in the body brings you deeper into the present moment because you're, you're, you're right here. You're not off somewhere else because you are, you are kind of um, in tune. And I guess the question comes up for me is um, developing that communication or even being able to kind of witness that, that gaps to be able to make a difference or to be able to change direction. I mean, it sounds like he's, he has spent a lot of effort and a lot of diligence kind of working and experimenting and finding a way through. Um, is there anything in that area that comes up for you that you may like to share about the specifics of, of you know, what that process may look like with this specific technique? So he, he did this all himself. And mm. if we were as diligent, we could do the same. <laughs> However, he devised a way, I suppose, of using his hands to help guide people in the direction that they need to go. Uh, so that it sort of fast tracks it. It's like we can we can start to come, uh, as we use our hands, we guide people into a better coordination so they can see how their thinking affects this physicality, that there's actually no separation. So the use of the hands in uh, teaching the technique is actually part of it. 
Um, and that's a skill that's learned over a period of three years of training. <clears throat> so he did use his hands when he was training people. Um, and that's what he taught people to do, as well as observing and using uh, verbal cues as well. Yeah. And, and how do you know where the right place to be is, is another question that comes up. Because it's like, okay, you're kind of seeing someone and you're using your hands, but like even when you're looking at yourself through all these mirrors, like where are you meant to be in comparison to where you are, you know? So that's a good question. So there's really no, well, there is a, there's an optimal organization of the physicality and it facilitates uh, ease of movement and a sense of ease in our body. Mm -hmm. So if when we move, we suddenly find that we're restricted in some way, we could be pretty sure that we're kind of a little bit off track. Uh, so, you know, pushing through pain and that sort of thing is actually not really something that we would encourage people to do, but we would encourage them to stop and start to think about what, okay, well, am I, sitting down on myself with my head and trying to do movement and it's restricted and then we start to guide someone to allow their head to move, to move and not be stuck so we're wanting the head to be mobile in all directions not held but not collapsed either so it's a very delicate sort of balance with the head <clears throat> it suddenly facilitates a, a coordination through the whole of the spine and torso that means we can move easily. It also means we can start to see when we are going ahead to do something and that thing, we, we have a reaction that's uh, squashing or collapsing <clears throat> in response to the action. That's where our mind comes into it. So we're always responding as human beings. What we want to get to know is whether the response is one of expansion or one of contraction. And we all know the one of contraction really easily, which is, you know, we get a fright and that's immediately what we do. And this mm. is, this is uh, you know, a life-saving uh, mechanism, but we don't want to be there all the time. So uh, you could take something as simple as a, as a task uh, say, for instance, if I asked someone to sit down, they could just give themselves a moment to think, well, okay, well, do I just do it reactively or can I take some agency over this and have a sense of length and clearness of my mind? I decide when I sit down and at what speed. So I'm not letting my pattern of just reacting um, take over. Yeah, this is, this is something that really interests me because what you kind of just pointed to in that moment was this, it's, it's, it kind of connects to this idea of that every motion that we do on the deepest level has a ripple out into reality. And there's an effect that comes out from that, whether we see it or not. So if we're able yeah. to um, realize, and this is almost like a, a physically embodied um, version of that or, or a space to begin or something, um, if we're able to work on that on a really micro level, the, the impacts, I believe, could be quite profound when they ripple out. And, and this is, this could, you know, this is, as far as we zoom out, this could be 
um, affecting generations to come. You know, if, oh, if, yeah. if, if we're connecting, our, if we're looking at what our thoughts are, our intentions, and then our movements throughout, you know, this life and how they do um, have a flow on effect and how it begins with this sense of presence in this moment and coming back to, you know, coming back into what we're actually, what we're actually up to rather than being off somewhere else on this kind of ingrained habitual motion. Yeah. So, you know, in a sense, you could say that what we're looking at is when people are throwing themselves forward into the future, worrying about what's coming up or anticipating what's coming up, which takes us completely, it disconnects us from the physicality. The physicality then has to just take care of itself. Or we might be remembering something from the past and dragging that experience with us. So then we're no longer actually right in the moment again. However, that doesn't mean that we can't learn from our experience and we can't, or that we can't plan. So planning for a future event has to be happening right now. That is my action. My action is to coordinate, to plan for something that's coming up, not to be in it and disconnected. So the technique gives us an opportunity to go, okay, my thinking and, and physicality are one thing. And so everything that I think has a physical component to it, whether I know it or not. The more skilled we become at applying the tools of the technique, the more we can start to see those really deeply ingrained things that we can see ourselves sort of throwing forward um, and anticipating and not actually taking the time now to take the steps towards the thing that we're doing. Mm. And so each step along the way is a moment of right now, not uh, a, a, a throwing forward even by 10 seconds. <laughs> You know, it's like, no, I don't want to be worrying about the thing that's going to happen in three months' time, but I want to be planning the steps I'm going to take towards it and stay present as I do that. So it's, it's kind of interesting in that what Alexander found was that he said end gaming, that action of throwing forward into the future, is the thing that undoes all of us. Can you tell me some, yeah, I know we've been kind of dancing and speaking around this, but I, yeah. I'd like to know more about this end gaining thing and what else his discoveries were and maybe what some of your discoveries around end gaining in your own life may have been as well. Yeah. Um, so the, the idea of end gaining is where you could say, you know, that old saying, the end justifies the means. Mm. So that, that's in Alexander world, that's like, no, it does not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so by staying present to what I'm actually doing right now, coordinating my mind and body in right now means I can take the next step and the next step and the next step towards the thing that I have an intention for. So the difference between having an intention and a, a final goal that I'm striving for are subtly different, but it's really important because I think a lot of the time when people start learning Alexander technique, they think, oh, I'm not allowed to have a goal. 
Uh, yes, we can. We have, can't function without having some sort of, you know, plan for our lives. But we don't want to be grasping them before they've arrived. So it's like that, that whole end gaining thing is about coming back to now and noticing that I've got an intention for that thing. Now I know the pathway I need to take each moment to get there. Mm. And it feels like sometimes the thing that, that we've got the intention for may look different to what we envision it in this moment. You know what I mean? Like we don't know what, how that's going to come about or come together because we're, we're not in that space. That's right. And so if you have, say, for instance, if you look at um, a performer, mm. somebody who's, uh, so my world was the, the classical singing world. So if I were planning to, you know, there's a performance in six weeks. If I was focused on that end, then I'd just get completely sort of discoordinated because my body would be here today and my mind is worrying about what's happening in six weeks. So coming back here, taking the steps to do what has to be done in order to head for that means that I can then change things in the moment. Mm -hmm. If suddenly things take a different turn, it's like, okay, somebody's just asked me, I have to sing that from up on the top of something. Well, I didn't think about that one, you know, three weeks ago, but if I can stay present, that is no problem. Yes. It's like it, it's like you'll handle it when the time is right and it will it will present itself um in the in the perfect way as long as you you there's a sense of trust in that as well, I feel. Yes, and that trust has to be built up through uh lessons, mm -hmm. regular lessons, so that a person can start to learn to trust their thinking, mm -hmm. their new thinking. Yeah. because uh, in the beginning it it does feel a bit like stepping off into the unknown. And it seems like there's a quite a bit of beauty that may arise as well. Cause this is just kind of getting this link between there's this wonderful teacher of mine. I'm not sure if you've come across his work, Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah. And he's got this, he's got this kind of idea of even with his footsteps, you know, that, that is kind of, that is the end in a sense that the means or, you know, whatever it's, it's the other way around because the footsteps are, are actually what matter, not where you're going. And there's a beauty in each step as well. That's right. And yeah. so you're balancing these two things really against each other. So this moment of, of, of that foot going down is, 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 a, is a, a whole thing in itself as we mm. then take the next one, which then means I've arrived at the thing that I was going to be doing. Yeah. The, yeah. the final intention, performance or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Yeah. This is like, yeah, it's wonderful to hear, <laughs> hear about this technique and to learn more about this and how you know just the beautiful kind of links between it and life and how kind of yeah how alive that is for me in my exploration at the moment so i appreciate you sharing this this is like mm. this is quite exciting <laughs> um and this idea of kind of um the you know everything being interconnected and how different parts of our being whether it's our you know within our psyche or within the physical body how they kind of compensate for areas of tension or kind of and then, you know, maybe you've got a pain up here, but it's really, um, you know, something down here. And the link between um, tension and, and emotions is coming up as well. So it's, it's, a, it's quite a lot, uh, you know, you, you're talking about 
also posture and endurance and um, you know coordination and all these like kind of aspects and you throw in emotions in the mix it can it seems quite overwhelming yeah and so we start very gently with people we look so we start if you like on the outside so a person may come because they've got some pain so we're looking very much at the at the physicality in that moment to find out what they're doing in that moment that is probably causing that pain now we're talking about pain that's a bit like non-specific there's a lot of non-specific back pain that people don't have ruptured discs or anything like that they just got pain and usually that's because they're what we say is misusing themselves now when i talk about yourself or oneself we're talking about my thinking my history my physicality my emotions my spiritual life all of it is myself none of it can be left out because it's all influencing everything so we take a step back from that because that's overwhelming, as you said. <clears throat> I go, okay, so if this person has got a pain in their back, in their lumbar, what are they doing on the surface that I can see uh, to, to create that pain? And usually people are pulling their head back. And so as soon as the head goes back, the lumbar spine, you could try it, just collapse your head back a bit and you find that something moves in your lumbar mm. it's and then when we think about the head just balancing a little bit forward up the head the spine can elongate the head goes back and we've either got to fight it and tighten or we collapse and so just something like that as simple as that we put our hands on move a person's head and move them into the chair in and out of a chair to practice getting their head releasing for their back to lengthen so they're not compressing themselves. That's the start. Then what happens is that we say, well, okay, I'm gonna ask you to go and sit in the chair. And as soon as you ask somebody to sit down, then all their baggage, if you like, that's attached to that activity starts to fire up again. They pull their head back, they compress their back. So what is that? That's their reaction, their inbuilt um, pattern to the task of sitting down that they didn't know they were doing. So we say, well, okay, let's see if you can just hear me to ask you to sit down without reacting in that way. Can you instead ask your head to continue to release away for your back to leg thing? And don't actually sit down yet. Don't do the task, but notice the reaction in your mind and all the activation that starts to bubble up before you've even got to sit down. This is how we then start to intercept how our thinking affects the way we move. So posture, in a sense, is, is not a real, not a thing. It's actually an expression of how we're organizing ourselves. So as Alexander teaches, we're not really overly concerned with posture. The posture will improve as a result of an improved organization of thinking. Interesting when we think about the idea of posture, like the posture of our lives, maybe. Yeah, it's a posture of mind. 
as mm. well, isn't it? I mean, that mm. used to be an old saying, you know, if somebody was doing something, say, well, they're posturing. <laughs> they're sort of doing something in their mind as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's really so connected in that way. So what, what kind of got you onto the Alexander Technique? What, what got you interested in? What was your kind of first glimpse into this? And, and yeah. maybe where, did, where was this excitement? It seems that you have, where was that born? <laughs> Uh, so I was a, a, um, an opera singer many years ago, a young opera singer, and I was very fortunate. I had a, an opportunity to um, work in a repertory theatre and doing singing as well. And a director there had just come, I was living in New Zealand at the time, and he'd just come back from the UK and he said, oh, I found this thing, this thing called the Alexander Technique, I'll show you. And I, my antenna went up and I was going, I'm sure you can't show me without having learned how to do it. <laughs> so I'm not going to have you put your hands on me and sort of pretend. <laughs> Anyhow, I, I, my antenna had gone up and I thought, oh, this thing sounds really fascinating because uh, actors and, and musicians, their body is their, is their tool of trade, as is their thinking, their conceptualization for characterization and musicianship and all that. So that started something in my mind. And then finally, when I did go back to the UK um, uh, to study further, I went and had Alexander lessons. So uh, my singing teacher at the time used to send all his students off to an Alexander teacher. Uh, and I just got totally fascinated by it. And to the, to the point where mm, eight years of lessons, I went, I think I've got to teach this. <laughs> So I, so I trained and uh, stopped being a performer, but started um, teaching Alexander Technique and, and, and teaching musicians because what I found was there was a, I had my singing teacher, I had my Alexander teacher, and I couldn't quite work out how does this work in the same room? It was, it was a bit mysterious to me. So I, I, really decided that I had to kind of find out how do I how do I teach people who are musicians to put this into practice in order to uh, make their lives easier they can play more better easier more fluidly more creatively it seems like it would fit in so well for so many people's lives not just musicians like and, and actors like it just seems like it's it's really the deep core of what we're talking about is, you know, mm. quite universal. It is. And I, I think that that's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's fantastic. It just is something you apply to everything. And uh, for people who are doing things at a high level, they don't have much uh, leeway for, for error. Mm -hmm. Most of us, you know, in everyday life, you know, we can sort of pick up something a bit badly and we can get away with it for a while. Uh, but um, a high-level high musician or um, sports person, they don't have a lot of leeway. They're really finely tuned and they just have to deviate slightly in their use and they can do some, you know, some harm. And, and in your own life, have you, have you noticed that the, yeah, maybe the question would be in what <laughs> ways have you noticed that kind of flowing in, you know, um, maybe even into your relationships as a whole, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I apply it pretty much all the time. I do a lot of cycling 
and I'm always thinking how I'm going. Um, I'll think about it while I'm cooking dinner. I'll just be standing there stirring something. I think, oh, I could just, you know, do less and go up a little more in myself from my feet to my head. Um, I think uh, what's really interesting is that with children, uh, they're very good at pressing your buttons. And so uh, just stepping back and having a moment and going, okay, I could just inhibit my initial response to that and re-coordinate and see if there's a new way. So I did try once. I, I found it quite interesting to do when my children were very little and they were having a fight about something or other sitting there and battling each other. And I remember standing there and just watching and going, okay, I could join in and <laughs> start getting cross. I could just wait and inhibit and re-coordinate myself. And it didn't take very long. They just turned around. They went, what? <laughs> going, oh, okay. So it does have a, it has an interesting impact because it quietens oneself. Gives you an opportunity to respond differently, but it also changes the way that other people turn and see you. And that I find really interesting. Yeah. Well, that that's it. Yeah. It's like you mentioned, everything is connected without any separation. So the sense of you just employing this state of presence within the relationships might allow you to kind of even, I'm going to take a leap here, but come into a deeper state of, of being and in doing so, possibly even love and understanding. And I think that yeah. people interacting with that deeper space, it's bound to have an impact. And that may even flow on to the people they impact, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So this is huge. Yeah. So I think that part of that then to me brings up that question of judgment. Mm -hmm. And when we teach people how to apply this technique to their lives, mm -hmm. the very first skill they have to learn is observation of themselves. And as we just take a moment to sort of pay attention to this, sort of like meeting yourself right here where you are with no judgment, no beating yourself over the head with, oh, I should be doing such, oh, I shouldn't be doing, oh my goodness, like, that's bad. But all of that dialogue can drop away. And it's like, actually, it's just how I am at the moment. It, I've just observed some deep running patterns and I can go, yay, okay, I've got an opportunity to change that right in this moment. And so with, with, with children, I think it's very easy to get caught up in the anger thing, you know, and they get very frustrating. But to stop and just go, don't, I'm not going to judge myself in this moment. I'm equally not going to judge them in this moment. We're going to see what happens if we just go, okay, let's all just be here for a minute. And then suddenly they start laughing. <laughs> see how ridiculous it all is. Yeah, that's, it is quite funny and laughable. And it's, it's interesting how it could have easily gone, like a situation like that could have easily gone in a number of other directions that were quite, uh, quite a lot more tense. You know, because it seems like there is another theme coming up for me. It's like this idea of releasing tension and just letting go again. Yeah. 
And, and that's a really interesting thing because if we release so much tension, we'll collapse. Yeah. So how much tension? So there's a balance of activation of being alive mm -hmm. combined with a release and expansion that means we can move through life quite easily and freely and add actively. Could you say that last part again? Yeah, because I'm, yeah, this is interesting. So, yeah, I'll, could you just repeat what you just said? Yeah, in, in I, I'll try. Way, maybe. That was <laughs> so good. So what I see sometimes is when people come for a lesson and they go, oh, I'm so tight, and they try to relax and relax and relax and let their mind go, and they just collapse and collapse. And I'm going, actually, no, you need to be a little bit more interested in being here. Yeah. <laughs> so that the activation of our system, which is about being alive and in this moment, is not overactive and it's not underactive. And so I guess what I find at the moment is people are, they're less active in their lives generally because they're sitting at computers more and therefore they're losing tone. And then they lose, then they get, then they get tight because everything's dragging. So then they release more and nothing changes except they get more and more sort of discoordinated. Then when you start to get people to be activated a little bit, there's almost a disappearing of the pain because we're now in balance with ourselves. Balance of gentle activation for a task, no more and no less. So re relaxing and releasing often results in collapse. And so we have to kind of reframe what it is to relax. We want to be relaxed, but not switched off and collapsed. And that tends to be a state that happens a lot. Yeah, you just <laughs> definitely, definitely makes sense. It, it's kind of reminded me of this idea of Wu Wei in, in Taoism. Have you come across that term? I have, but I don't know what it is. Well, it's, it's kind of what you just mentioned. It's like this sense of, um, you know, moving around about things with not no effort, but kind of the least amount necessary and, and, and this flow taking place. And also, you know, this kind of links up to what we were saying earlier around, um, things kind of i don't know it seems as though it seems as though uh, as you're walking through life if you can find this balance point in times like obviously everything's constantly shifting and there will be kind of recalibration as you go and that's a constant dance within itself but there is a sense of almost um the next step kind of presenting itself and we're not going to know till till we get there it's like what you said about the singer and the the position and you could only know once you're in that setting so yeah, that's a very interesting kind of observation. And now I'm kind of wondering where the breath comes in because I'm sure there's an element of breathing in all of this as well. Uh, yes. So, so the thing is, is that mostly when people are not well coordinated, so when I'm saying coordinate, I'm talking about their mind and body coordination. So as soon as they get sort of tuned up in that way, mm -hmm. Breathing starts to change of itself. Okay. And so, you know, a good coordinated system will be breathing. Now we can interfere with breathing. 
it's basically an autonomic nervous system will run itself. We will always breathe until we're dead, obviously. But the breathing can be disrupted by, you know, somebody being squashed down. The function here is not going to work well. And so mm -hmm. no amount of breathing techniques are really going to make a lot of difference. But once the structure is reorganized and the head is poised again, the breathing will take care of itself. Now, we can impose or, or put in place breathing exercises and techniques. But what we're looking for at Alexander work is a good functioning natural breathing. So that anything else that somebody wants to do is coming from a place of good coordination already. So they'll be able to get more from it rather than using techniques to fix up poor breathing. It doesn't always work. Uh, so, you know, getting in underneath, it's almost like the thing behind the thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you see yes. what I mean? So yep. the coordination of myself and how I approach something is going to influence what that outcome is yep that's that's what you're mentioning or pointing to earlier in terms of the like what are you what's being expressed or the expression of mm. yeah what what is and it's so fascinating I, i've kind of noticed that and this yeah this is quite a large kind of thought it's this idea of like everything being a representation every single thing so every every thought every movement everything we do or think and beyond that everything that exists is almost like pointing towards something it's like a representation of something deeper mm. which is which is an interesting thing um i'm just yeah so i'm i'm wondering also there's a sense of almost like um either a, a requirement to be like alexander to spend all this time and effort experimenting mm. with yourself which seems like it's probably not the Wu Wei path of least kind of resistance. Uh, and But then also like, does, is there a need for someone there with their hands on you? Like, is there any middle ground and can people do any of this kind of, can they begin on their own or do they really need someone to um, help kind of in the mm. beginning parts of the process or stages? Well, uh, for starters, if we were going to do it like Alexander did it, we'd have to make the same discoveries, really. We'd have to come up with the same discoveries to really make an impact mm -hmm. on ourselves. So, but uh, the hands kind of help to, to keep people on track, okay? Mm. What he did find, and, and certainly we can have Alexander lessons without hands, and there are teachers who do that. Um, what, what has to be addressed in order to learn it are the, are the impediment so i tried to sort of make this as simple as possible for when i'm training other teachers people to become teachers that that we're learning basically three skills however there are things that arise as we learn these three skills that are the things that get in the way mm -hmm. so uh the three skills very briefly are observation how to observe uh, the, uh, the thing that Alexander called inhibition, which is simply to say no to something. Just go, oh, I, I actually don't want to do that. And then what we call directing. 
and that's what the energizing of this, the central organization. So those are the three skills, but what arises when we start to learn them is we find ourselves end gaining and we have to uh, be aware of that and see when we're doing that. The other one that we come up against is faulty sensory feedback. And so when we're learning the Alexander Technique, we are moved into places by the teacher that feel really wrong. But they're better coordination and they're only feeling wrong in relation to what we were doing. So if I give you an example, uh, most people are pulling their head back and therefore sort of squashing themselves. As soon as we balance the head on the top and get people lengthened, they often feel like they're falling forward. Now they look in the mirror and they see that they're not. They're actually really well organized. But their brain is giving them this signal that this is wrong. I feel wrong. And so uh, what Alexander found was that that little thing that keeps telling me that I'm wrong will always get in our way of being able to move somewhere new. So until we learn how to really move ourselves uh, to inhibit really that, that, that little thing that goes, that's wrong, I can't do that, I must feel right, because that'll be back to our habit. If I feel wrong, maybe this is something new. I have to keep on energizing this direction. That's where the hands can help. And we go, well, actually, you're here. See if you can abide with this for a moment. Mm. Notice it. See how different it is. As we do it more, it becomes more accurate and our brain no longer sees it as wrong. And uh, one of Alexander's very early students said that the process of learning the Alexander technique is one of reasoning from the known to the unknown. Because if we don't know it's even there, the possibility that I could move in this direction, we will never go and do it ourselves. Now, Alexander must have been quite extraordinary because he did do that. And that's the thing that without hands is very difficult for students to do themselves. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm kind of yeah. relating it to something as simple as an itch while meditating and not reactively scratching it. So this idea of like kind of calming down that reactive function seems to be coming up over and over again. Yep. Yeah. And then, yeah, finding that little space in there where you can maybe just sit with the initial discomfort for a moment um, rather than have to do something about it. Yeah. And so we, uh, what we do then is we say, well, okay, you notice this strange or unfamiliar sensation. That's your proprioceptive center of your brain giving you some interesting feedback. As long as it doesn't include pain, it's okay. And then you start to notice how it's actually not really a physical thing. It's actually my mind that's more agitated about it than my body. My body's actually feeling quite comfortable here, but my brain's going wrong, 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 move yourself. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it becomes a, a change of thinking pattern. Thinking and moving again, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, interrelated. 
and we start to see our mental patterns as well, our thinking patterns. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it is fascinating. Yeah, mm. kind of, mm. I was just talking to someone earlier around this idea of uh, not knowing, not knowing where one might be heading in life and being okay with that sense, like sitting in that seat mm. rather than having to grasp at the idea of knowing or desperately struggle in that space, which then brings, it, brings along other forms of tension and suffering and I'm sure even in the physical sense as well, because everything translates. Absolutely. So you and must in, see, sorry. Yeah, yeah go, on, go on. I was just thinking that you must see these kind of immense transformations with people from these kind of tight kind of um, clasped, clasped beings into these kind of, you know, butterflies spreading their wings eventually. Like I'm, I'm sure you've seen many of this kind of thing. Yes. It's amazing what it can do for people. And I, I, I look back for myself and I go, wow, you know, I'm not that same person. I don't seem to be that same person. Yeah. And yeah. certainly people really do transform. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting looking back at your own life before and after. And, and I mean, it's an interesting thing to do anyway, to look at all the lives we've lived within this one and how that's mm. always kind of emerging. I'm curious to know if there's anything at the moment that's quite alive for you in your explorations or in your learnings. Oh, all the time. I, mean, <laughs> I can't really pick one out. I, I mean, I always, because everybody's so different, you know, a student will come along, a new person will come along for some lessons and I'll start and see where they're at, you know, have to sort of get the sense of where they're, what they're doing. And I'm always amazed at how different everybody is. So mm. then I've got to be, I've got to be really present to what's happening because I can't have an agenda because this person's different. How that do relationship I know with the unknown. Gonna... Yeah, absolutely. And that, that unknown space is an immense space for learning. And it's when we can't abide. And, you know, a lot of people can't abide in that space because it's, it's a bit, little bit scary. And they'll bring their paradigms back in. Their belief structures. It has to be like this because, and that prevents a change. And, you know, I see that a lot. And, and, and my job, I suppose, is to gently, gently coax people to see that it's okay to go into that little room of, of, of not knowing. We just put a toe in there every now and then. They may not know really that that's what I'm doing, but, but they go there. They go there and they change something. They go home and they play around with that change. <laughs> <laughs> and then they come back and we go a little bit more, you know, to change. Um, yeah, yeah. Joanna was describing the experience she had with me. And I, I've been kind of, it's been kind of fascinating kind of learning about this journey with her. And, you know, this is where my kind of uh, curiosity kind of grew and grew and it's become more and more alive around the technique. But she was saying that when there's, when there's like kind of a physical touch happening, it's almost like there's a merging of nervous systems in a sense. And this beautiful kind of thing happens where you kind of, you're moving as one or something. Can you, would you talk <laughs> yep. to that? Cause that sounds uh, fascinating. Yeah. So, um, you know, touch is, is immensely valuable. It, it, well, it's part of our systems. We, we, 
you know, we, we value touch. And as human beings, we kind of need it to be uh, good with the world, I think, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so what we do with Alexander is that uh, we learn how to quieten our own nervous system, but then to direct our intention. I mean, you could call this chi, probably an easier way to describe it, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's the innate, the, 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 the energetic life force of upness <laughs> against gravity that we then start to learn how to actually uh, use our hands and guide people with that nervous system. So I have to be organizing myself well first before I can put my hands on my students. Otherwise, they'll just feel intruded upon, pushed or pulled around. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do that. I want to get myself going well, that when I put my hands onto somebody's body, likely I can help their nervous system to go in that direction, to expand without pulling and pushing the musculature. So how do you do that for yourself before you begin? Is it like it just, yeah, what do you do? Uh, well, I, I mean, I do it all the time. It's, it's that I'm applying the same tools that I'm teaching. I'm observing what I'm doing. I'm noticing if I've gone down here or I'm squishing and I go, okay, I don't, I don't want to squish. Let me think about allowing myself to, to expand. And then if I can put my hands onto somebody's head and, and, and not get myself here, because this will feel horrible for them. Mm. I've got to stay expanded while I move. Um, as we get more skilled at actually directing ourselves or, or energizing, let's say, um, it becomes, you can be, get really, really clear with it. It's yeah. like the baggage of the reactiveness drops away and I could get very clear with my thinking so that I could, you know, sort of help somebody to notice, oh, that's what you're asking. Yes. That's what the words mean. You, this is the physical experience of the words. So we match. It's like learning a new language, really. So yeah. that's where, yeah, that's where the, the mind and the body is really important there because those words that I'm going to say to myself have to mean this physical experience. It's interesting that you've, yeah, you've mentioned the idea of words saying to yourself. I had, I had a podcast a little while ago around the idea of the words that we say, whether to ourselves or when we vocalize them as being spells. And, and as we, and even as we sing, we can amplify those spells if we're singing from this place of chi that you mentioned. So mm. it's like, where are we actually singing from? And it sounds like you're speaking about the same thing. Cause I mean, if we look at that as being some sense of energy and that vibration being kind of going out there and then harmonizing with another being, um, and, and that kind of that vocalization being a representation of that. And I think, again, internally, the, the vocalization or the internal chatter is a representation of that, that kind of core energy that, you know, if we're not coming into a state of balance with or presence with before we begin, we can end up pulling and pulling, pulling and pushing kind of, you know, our way through life and people feel the effects of that just as much. Yeah, and we have to be clear about what we're saying, really. 
but also knowing that however we say it, it's never going to land the same as I understand it mm. because everybody's different. Everyone's got different language. Yep. And yeah. everybody's got different filters and experiences and all that sort of thing. So if I say something to a student, I'm listening with my hands to see how that lands in their physicality because I might need to change my language. Mm -hmm. I might need to get creative about what I'm asking them to do. I might have to um, use a whole set of new words because the, the words of, uh, well, the traditional words are let your neck be free for your head to go forward and up. Now, that means absolutely nothing, but somebody might try to do forward and up with their head, so they're going to do all sorts of interesting things. I go, well, that doesn't land well for them. They're not understanding what I mean. But I can show them with my hand and go, okay, what, how would you call this? What would you call this? And they might call it, I don't know, fruit salad. I say, okay, <laughs> if it works, that's fine. If it creates this with yeah. your body, you can call it fruit salad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because we're talking about something that's quite hard to put words around and, and words themselves are quite slippery things when we try to put them around anything. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is all kind of, yeah, kind of blowing my mind with kind of interest and fascination. <laughs> when I was, when I was younger, I remember I was, I was doing jujitsu for a while and I was training and I was doing all these other things like um, swimming and weights and all these things to try to kind of boost that up. And I remember just like kind of looking at the way that I was standing and feeling like things were just out of whack with my body, but not being able to know a path to kind of bring them back into alignment or something. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. it was quite kind of an uncomfortable feeling, just kind of not knowing where to go and what, what, what that would look like. And it seems like the Alexander technique is kind of made for that in a sense. It's, it's like a, a realignment. Um, yeah. It's a how to, it's a means whereby. Yes. As we call it. So that yeah. I can do whatever. So it's, it, it, you know, sometimes I like to think of it as, now here we are, we're, we're, we're born with a mechanism that knows how to stand up. How does it happen? Well, most of us don't really know. You know, there I am standing on the ground, gravity's holding me there. And then how do I maintain this uprightness? It's a, it's a, a system that we've evolved with. And we don't need to interfere with it because as children, children are beautifully balanced, usually, mm -hmm. um, and in relation to the ground. Uh, but we, we interfere with it. And then we don't know what to do. Then we have no way out. And uh, I guess that's what this provides is a, is a means to get back in contact, if you like, or coordination with that system that's in there. And we don't need to be doing the extra to try and hold ourselves up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, this has got so many parallels to other things that we kind of explore um, mm. that I explore as well. And there's a sense of, um, yeah, like removing rather like the layers that have been put on top based back to a purity or something. Yeah, and absolutely. also this idea, like we lose so many things that we have, that we have when we're mm. children, sense mm. of playfulness and curiosity and 
um, aliveness for a yes. lot of different reasons. Yeah. It's like another one, but you're just talking, it's like you're speaking about a lot of things that I speak about on the podcast, but from this totally different perspective, looking at it from almost like in, entirely beginning from the body with the realization of interconnectedness. That's, that's fascinating. Mm, mm. Yeah. And as you say, it's about sort of stopping stuff. So it's like we, we, we load over the top of this beautiful coordination a bunch of stuff for whatever reason. It doesn't matter actually what the reason is. Uh, but in the moment of an Alexander te te technique lesson, we can learn how to, how to uh, undo that stuff. And so it's more about looking at what I am doing that's unnecessary and can I just stop doing it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's I, confronting for a lot of people. Yeah, it's very confronting because we're in these kind of motions already <laughs> and it's like putting a bit of a block in the way. And I, and I guess that's the question of attitude comes up. Like, I'm sure that would be quite an important thing. Like you've already mentioned the attitude of being gentle with oneself through the process. Are there any other attitudes that kind of are important to embody or to keep in mind at least? Well, you've got to have an open mind, <laughs> whatever yeah. that means. But, you know, people do come with preconceived ideas. Yeah. And they come with, I, I like to sort of say, well, you know, we, we all have a kind of a style of the, the way that our brain operates. You know, some people are predominantly more pessimistic. Others are more optimistic. Some people are highly critical. Some are very, very analytical. So it's like they've got an underlying activation of their brain now sometimes if people are really really stuck in those particularly analytical very difficult to get them in their bodies mm. and sometimes can be very very difficult to to teach is there a technique that you employ when when things are really difficult to just kind of be a catalyst for that kind of new birth to take place um, well, we do table work, which is really nice. You know, we put table table the, work. Yeah, so we just lie people on the table. It's it's called semi supine. Some people call it constructive rest. Um, lying on the floor on the floor or on the table with a book under your head and your knees up, so your feet are on the floor, knees bent. Uh, yeah, and yeah. then we just think the directions. We start actually running the pattern of don't interfere or just observe, don't interfere with anything. Now think the length of my head to my, to my tailbone, let them softly go away from each other and start to, you know, run the patterns of new thinking, can calm their system and bring them back into their body. But, you know, sometimes people come because they've been told that they should. Usually not a good space. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 This is, yeah. This seems to be like a, uh, like we said earlier about this kind of active effort as well as the letting go combined yeah. rather yeah. than a forcefulness or something. That's um, right. I'm wondering around uh, this. Yeah. So I'm wondering, there's links, there's links I can see with like Buddhism and yoga. And I was wondering what your personal relationship would be with these kind of spaces and maybe how that's evolved over time. Mm. So I used to meditate a lot. Mm. Uh, 
my father <laughs> paid for me to go and do a transcendental meditation course when I was about 18. Oh. And I and I, I loved it. And I, I, I stuck with that for many, many years. And then I, I can't remember why I stopped. Probably because I actually started having Alexander lessons. And I found that there were some really interesting similarities of that uh, that uh, mindfulness, I suppose we could call it, that present moment thing. And then I've, I've spent quite a lot of time doing Buddhist meditation as well. And I, I kind of find that there are some interesting parallels there with, with the grasping mind and the, the aversion. And uh, this is a bit like I was what I was describing before. That, you know, something arises, we're about to do something and we want to get it right. So our mind is grasping it really tightly. And if we can just let that go, we can then facilitate ourselves into that activation, that, 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 that movement. If we have pain, we're often trying to push it away. And actually, if we can stop doing that, because that's another mental process. Hmm. And we pause, stop that as well. So applying inhibition, again, to say, no, 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 don't worry about that. Let me just stay present with this with my head balance. Can I change it? Does it change? You know, so we're not, we're not pushing and pulling. We're sort of abiding in that space in between pushing and pulling, which again is that place that you were referring to and i think it's like that's the learning zone what about yoga oh we do yoga at the training school and um yoga's great to apply alexander technique to anything yeah. is actually yeah uh, interesting yeah. it's such a yeah such a fascinating sharing and this is kind of like opened up a whole new world for me and <laughs> i appreciate you kind of sharing and, and kind of going into these kind of spaces um and you know opening up about this and being willing to kind of meet with me today oh, it's um, a pleasure <laughs> yeah it's it's yeah. nice to just um find something new like this i'm sure you probably felt a similar way when that director kind of approached you and mm. was had that enthusiasm and um yeah. i'm definitely feeling that now and i'm sure you've probably you know seen that amongst a lot of people as well um yeah so I guess there's just some gentle encouragement to find out more if anyone's listening and, and, you know, is there anything you could share about maybe how people could learn more or if people mm -hmm. wanted to um, get in touch with the teacher or, yeah. you know, about the school or anything, just, yeah, share away if you yeah, have information. Sure. So there's, um, we have a professional website, which is called Ausstat or Alex uh, Australian Society of the Teachers of the Alexander Technique. <laughs> bit of a mouthful yeah Short that. <laughs> and there's a find a teacher um facility on there uh the training school is in north fitzroy in melbourne and that's you know people can google that find the the, uh, the school site and give us a call or go on to the uh to the booking pages or whatever and find lots of information on that site actually um yeah, yeah. And then, you know, there are teachers around in Melbourne. There are a lot of teachers in Melbourne, actually. So uh, they can all be found pretty much all of them on the Oddstat website. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Mm. Well, I'll definitely leave some links. Um, there is an, another curiosity coming up now just quickly around this idea of like 
like the combination of of a few of these things we've spoken about it seems like this it's like a ground level um building of a sort of potency of presence like it's just this is like really exciting mm. and yeah it's just this idea of um you know just how how nice it must feel to get to a sense of being in a in a body that's functioning well yeah you know, i even feel like with mine there's probably many ways that um i'm certain there can be like little adjustments and thing and it's also like a sense of love for your body or something like a respect or this whole idea of your body as a temple kind of thing comes up and cleaning that and looking after it and caring for that yeah, yeah. and it's, it's like um it is it's really looking after oneself on many levels yeah um yeah, so so it's like practicing it all the time, and I, because I teach quite a bit, I'm really just practicing it all the time. So, and and I think that that as I get older, it's even more important, so that I don't lose function, um, that I don't injure myself unnecessarily, and all those sorts of things. And as we get older, you know, there's there's going to be things that go wrong. Alexander technique's not a guarantee against anything you know but but it does mean that we can deal with those things in a better way perhaps than without it mm. uh, so yeah that's my my thing is that, that as i age i'm going to be keeping on going <laughs> yeah with my alexander work yeah yeah yeah, yeah i mean yeah it's, it's an interesting i've just been talking i just had a podcast on the idea of death actually and that was quite a fascinating kind of exploration but there's this yeah there's this idea of i guess some there's a sense of uh, this kind of way of thinking of kind of wanting to live forever or not wanting to age but then there is also this kind of idea that comes up around um living well and even dying well you know and sure. while we're here to you know if we if we can have you know, you know, just, I'm just picturing someone like withering away, watching TV or something, you know, and the sadness mm. of that thought in, in comparison to like uh, someone that's, you know, quite alive, even while they're dying. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It's an interesting thing. And I, I, there's certainly some interesting books that have come out recently about Alexander technique and aging. Oh yeah. Yeah, and, and it's a series of interviews with older Alexander teachers. And I, I read that and I thought, yeah, you know, that, that there are things that happen to us as we get older. You know, joints don't work so well. Now, is that misuse or is that just is it genetics? We don't know, really. Mm, mm. But the more that we can pay attention and, and look after ourselves on all levels and function well, the better. And then when something does happen, as invariably it does, I think, um, then we have a way of being able to move through it without it impacting the rest of our lives unnecessarily. So uh, if I think about, say, uh, somebody has to undergo a hip replacement, for instance, the, the tightening and the protection that happens from having something like that happens means that there's contraction and, and and it's hard to get moving again all those sorts of things but if we can put the 
our skill of Alexander technique into play whilst something like that is going on, we can at least start to move through it and not carry on the tightenings that have been triggered by that sort of event. We can undo them, we notice them mm. and change them. Yeah, and what would you rather? Would you rather go through that that hip surgery in one way or the other? <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's right. Do you want to be compressed at the end of it, or would you like to be expanded yeah. and movable and movable? You know. Yeah. Thank you for your participation in this episode of the Daydreamer podcast. I'll leave links on our beautiful guest in the show notes section on the website, where you can check out all their wonderful work and offerings. And if you're interested in working one-on-one with me, feel free to head over to todaydreamer.com and get in touch. Also, if you're a part of the Today Dreamer family, which really only means that you've listened to one full episode and you'd like to go deeper to at least one full episode, then um, and you'd like to participate in some group meditation sessions online that I'm offering for free only to listeners of the show, then please send me an email through the contact form on the website. I'll add you to the list and um, I'll give you all the details to that and any other upcoming kind of offerings around helping your development in this space. Thank you so much again. And until next time, uh, be present, uh, feel alive and yeah, be well.